Good afternoon. It's cloudy and 30 degrees in St. Johnsbury at 3.30 on this Wednesday, February the 23rd, 2021. I'm Bob Welch, and this is my world. In the headlines, well, they take us from under the Bay of Fundy, where a turbine is hoped to harness the power of the tides, which ebb and flow between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, to Eastport, Maine, where they're looking for a city manager and Newark, New Jersey, where they're trying to revive their city across the Hudson from Manhattan without any gentrification. Weather in northeastern Vermont and northern New Hampshire is, for tonight, cloudy. A few flurries or snow showers possible, a load down to 25. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 32. Tomorrow night, clear skies with a few passing clouds, low around 10. Periods of snow for Friday. We'll get an inch of it. For the high near 35, and for Saturday, a mix of sun and clouds, a high of 27. Sunday, occasional snow showers, a high of 28. And looking around the region, as we come on here, 34 degrees under cloudy skies in Boston. In fact, everybody is cloudy, aside from Montreal, which is 34. 36 degrees in New York, up the... Taconic Parkway, or I think that's 684, to Brewster, where it is 36 degrees, Hartford 37, Barnstable Cape Cod 36, and Albany 30. Yes, it is 684 you take to go through Brewster. It's also on the Harlem line of Metro North. Recapping our St. Johnsbury temperature, cloudy and 30 degrees. Coming up, a turbine takes on the tide that waits for no man. We're going to the waters which we share between Maine, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia now, and the power which can be harnessed from the powerful change between high and low tide, and this story from the Globe and Mail newspaper out of Toronto, but whose scope is national within Canada. A large floating platform with six underwater turbines was launched Monday near the mouth of the Bay of Fundy, marking the latest high-tech bid to generate electricity by harnessing the bay's powerful tides. Sustainable Marine Energy Canada started testing a smaller but similar catamaran-style platform near Nova Scotia's Briar Island in 2018. Another effort to tried resulted in the turbines uh, breaking apart from the auger that drove them and floating away. The tide is that strong there. But this bigger second-generation platform is expected to undergo testing this winter and spring in the same area known as Grand Passage. It will be towed later this year to the Bay's Minus Passage near Cape Sharp, Nova Scotia, where it will be permanently installed in a test area that experiences the world's highest tides. The company describes the 420-kilowatt platform called Plat-1 as Canada's first floating tidal energy array. It is expected to produce 50% more power than its predecessor. The turbines look like inverted windmills and are designed to flip up for maintenance like a boat's outboard motor. The platform includes a turret that will allow it to align itself with the tidal flow. It was built by A.F. Terrio and Son Limited in Mateegan, Nova Scotia, the site of Monday's launch. Sustainable Marine, 
whose Canadian office is located in Dartmouth, the other side of the harbor from Halifax, Nova Scotia, says its Pempakin Stream Tidal Energy Project will eventually include two other platforms which will produce a total of nine megawatts of electricity. That's enough electricity to supply 3,000 homes. Pempak, by the way, is the Mi'kmaq word for rise of the tide. The Canadian government contributed $28.5 million to the project in November. Sustainable Marine's parent company is based in Edinburgh, Scotland. Its major shareholders include the Canadian government, Schottel of Germany, and Scottish Enterprise, based in Glasgow, Scotland. Maine needs to accelerate plans to get more electric vehicles on the road as other states and car makers use them as linchpins to move ahead in a race to cut emissions and save on fuel. That's according to a national study released today. The nonprofit American Council for Energy Efficient Economy ranked Maine fifth among New England states and 17th nationally. All regional states except for New Hampshire ranked in the top 30, with Massachusetts leading them. California topped the overall rankings. The report looked at plans and goals for charging infrastructure, incentives to expand electric vehicles, and electric grid optimization. The report comes a week after President Joe Biden raised the stakes for states to get on board with electric vehicles, and a major U.S. automaker said it would change over its fleet. Biden made electric vehicles the centerpiece of his climate plan, saying he wanted to convert about 645,000 postal trucks and passenger vehicles to all-electric and incentivize American companies to build a network of 500,000 charging stations. That story from the Bangor Daily News. Staying in Maine, we take you to Washington County, the easternmost county in the state, touching New Brunswick and the Atlantic Ocean, and the city of Eastport, the easternmost city in the United States. And despite its population of 1,329 as of 2019, it's legally a city, and Maine's smallest. That city is looking for its next city manager. Its last city manager was fired last week, just a year after Thomas Hoskins was, fi- was hired. The city council voted 4-1 to one to fire him. The manager's dismissal marks the latest example of turnover in high-level positions in Eastport. Hoskins was the fifth city manager since 2010. Eastport's police department has gone through nine different chiefs over the past 10 years. The council discussion on whether to fire Hoskins was held in executive session prior to the vote, said Eastport City Council President William Boone, who declined to comment on why the council voted to end Hoskins' three-year contract. Hoskins had no prior work experience in the public sector prior to becoming Eastport City Manager. Some residents objected to that at the time he was hired. Others have criticized Hoskins over the firing of the city's police chief last fall. The fired chief, Peter Harris, was offered his job back by the council earlier this month after he appealed his firing to the city council. Harris, who since September has been working for the Pleasant Point Police Department in the Passamaquoddy tribal land adjacent to Eastport, decided not to accept the reinstatement offer. 
cities small like Eastport, Maine, and decidedly larger like Newark in New Jersey, across from Manhattan, are among the many dealing with their situations, problems, and dilemmas. Newark's challenge is to reinvigorate their communities without gentrifying them. Construction workers in the South Ward of Newark, one of New Jersey's most distressed areas, are busy now converting a long-abandoned bank into an apartment building and Poets Cafe these days, a decrepit mansion in the Central Ward built by a Newark beer baron before the turn of the 20th century, is being revamped as a makerhood, a first-of-its-kind co-working residential and retail space. In a feature-length report on the New York Times, which I encourage you to read, developer Siri Morris is profiled. He recently finished erecting six three-bedroom apartments on a formerly vacant lot. Next up for him, condos made from shipping containers and an affordable housing complex named for his late brother Michael on the street where they grew up. While the downtown corridors of Newark, a poor industrial city burdened by decades of disinvestment, have been on the rebound for years, much of the rest of the city has been largely left behind. But now, even in Newark's far-flung residential neighborhoods, they're in the midst of a slow recovery. The transformation, fueled largely by a push to expand affordable housing and homeownership in the city of renters, is part of a deliberate strategy with an ambitious goal, erasing Newark's long legacy of blight without pushing out residents, 86% of whom are black or Latino. The challenge of avoiding gentrification while revitalizing a city once synonymous with urban decay is steep. More than a quarter of Newark's 282,000 residents live in poverty and only 22% own homes. Many neighborhoods are still reeling from the 2018 discovery of elevated levels of lead in tap water. Streets are pockmarked by an estimated 2,000 vacant lots, haunting reminders of the middle-class exodus that began before the city erupted in flames during the five days of deadly unrest back in 1967 and accelerated in the decades that followed. That story from the New York Times. Now this passing, the name you certainly, well, you may not recognize, but whose work and ideas you most certainly can recognize just about everywhere you go. The name is Sidney Yunobsky. He grew up in Callis, Maine, and became a nationally prominent real estate developer and pioneered the concept of the movie multiplex. He died on January the 20th, but we're just learning this today. He was 83. Unobsky was best known as one of the early innovators in shopping mall and movie theater design, pioneering the concept of the multiplex, which houses multiple theaters under one roof. In 1967 and 68, he worked on Senator Robert F. Kennedy's plans to redevelop the then-struggling Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, and later, on Kennedy's fateful 1968 presidential campaign, he was assassinated, Kennedy was. He used contacts from real estate development to set up campaign events at shopping centers in voter-rich suburbs. In 1991, 
Unobsky was named chair of the San Francisco Planning Commission, helping guide that city's recovery from the 6.9 magnitude earthquake that hit the city in 1989, killing more than 60 people and causing more than $5 billion in property damage. Back at home in Maine, Unobsky was a well-known supporter of education and economic development in Washington County, from which he came funding programs to expand local students' opportunities. Sidney grew up in Callis, and while his professional life took him around the world, he never forgot his roots, said Richard Warren, publisher of the Bangor Daily News, who served with Unobsky on the Roosevelt Campobello International Commission, the body that oversees the international park on Campobello Island, New Brunswick. He was a determined supporter of tourism and development both in Washington County and Charlotte County, New Brunswick, right next door, where he had an idea he felt worth pursuing. He was tenacious. Unobsky and his wife Nancy founded Unobsky College in Callis in 1998, which for 12 years offered college classes in one of Maine's poorest areas with limited access to higher education. The college eventually became part of Hassan University, to which the Unobskis donated one and a quarter million dollars. Unobsky College building in 2007. Hassan ended the college in 2010, citing low student numbers. In 2009, Hassan awarded Unobsky an honorary doctorate. Last year, Unobsky launched the Unobsky Scholars Program. Each year, it sends 12 students from nine high schools in Washington County, Maine, and Charlotte County, New Brunswick, to a summer session at Phillips Academy in Endover, Massachusetts, where Unobsky attended high school. Sidney Unobsky died in San Francisco after a long battle with cancer, according to his obit, published in the Bangor Daily News. Today is Wednesday, February the 3rd, and you're listening to Bob's World on this 34th day of 2021 with 331 days left in the year. Football Hall of Famer Fran Tarkenton is 81. Another Football Hall of Famer, Bob Grease, is 76. Singer-guitarist Dave Davies of the Kinks is 74 today. Morgan Fairchild is 71 how the heck did that happen? Rock musician, author, Lowell Tolhurst of The Cure is 62. Actor Maura Tierney is 56. Again, how did that happen? Human rights activist Amal Clooney is 43. In 1865, President Abraham Lincoln and Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens held a shipboard peace conference off the Virginia coast the talks deadlocked over the issue of Southern autonomy. 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. That provided for a federal income tax. 1916, Canada's original parliament buildings in Ottawa burned down. In 1917, the United States broke off diplomatic relations with Germany. The same day, an American cargo ship, the SS Housatonic, was sunk by a U-boat off Britain after the crew was allowed to board lifeboats. In 
1930, the Chief Justice of the United States, William Howard Taft, former president, resigned for health reasons. He died just over a month later. 1943, in World War II, the U.S. transport ship SS Dorchester, which was carrying troops to Greenland, sank after being hit by a German torpedo in a Labrador Sea. Of more than 900 men aboard, some 230 survived. Four army chaplains on board gave away their life jackets to save others and went down with the ship. 1959, rock and roll stars Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Big Bopper Richardson died in a small plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. 1966, the Soviet probe Luna 9 became the first man-made object to make a soft landing on the moon. In 1988, the U.S. House of Representatives handed President Ronald Reagan a major defeat, rejecting his request for $36.2 million in new aid to the Nicaraguan Contras by a vote of 219 to 211. In 1994, the space shuttle Discovery lifted off, carrying Sergei Kirkulev, the first Russian cosmonaut to fly aboard a U.S. spacecraft. In 1998, Texas executed Carla Faye Tucker for the pickaxe killings of two people in 1983. She was the first woman executed in the United States since 1984. A U.S. Marine plane also in 1998 sliced through the cable of a ski gondola in Italy, causing the car to plunge hundreds of feet, killing all 20 people inside, and I remember telling some of you that story through the radio when I was still at WWLR, the Impulse 91.5, in Lindenville. In 2006, an Egyptian passenger ferry sank in the Red Sea during bad weather, killing more than a thousand passengers. And now these items for last. Ariel Ben Abraham. He is owner of clothing company Create Supply in Seaside Heights, New Jersey. He said he receives FedEx packages all the time for his business, so it wasn't unusual for him to have received a package Monday morning, but the size of the box did give him pause. He said he was even more confused when he opened the box and discovered more than a dozen jumbo-sized hockey sticks. The sticks were sent from a company called True Hockey and were intended for former Bruin and now Washington Capitals star Zdeno Chara. He then tweeted photos of the hockey sticks and the post went viral. Caught the attention of True Hockey officials who sent the sticks, but not to him. Corey Gregory is True Hockey's trade marketing manager for North America and tells ESPN, we got the first notice around 5 p.m., and it was a little bit confusing. How is there a young man posting in New Jersey that he had sticks? Then I looked at the box and saw that it was intended for the Washington Capitals and just thought, oh, my God, the Charas. They got to Zdeno Chara eventually. A New York State attorney tells the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle he bought a building to expand his practice. He then discovered a hidden attic that contained photographs and photography-related items from over 100 years earlier. David Whitcomb 
said he and a friend were examining the building he purchased in Geneva, New York, when they discovered the structure had an attic that he wasn't told about during the showing, nor when he bought the property. Whitcomb said he located the access panel and looked into the attic, discovering it was filled with photographs, frames, glass negatives, and other materials that appeared to be very old. He said the items are believed to have belonged to J.E. Hale, a photographer who was active in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Hale's name is on many of the items, including pieces of mail found in the attic, and boy, if those pieces of mail could talk, not to mention all the other stuff that was up there. Whitcomb said Hale's belongings in the attic included several photos of Susan B. Anthony, including a print of her official photograph from the Library of Congress, which was taken by Hale. Whitcomb said most of the items from the attic were taken to one-source auctions and antiques for restoration and eventual sale. A friendly reminder as we reach the end that our talkback machine is always on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 802-467-0212. Don't worry about disturbing me by ringing the thing. I don't hear it ring. It just records. And it is ready for your feedback on any of the stories heard on this broadcast throughout the past few weeks it has been on. Please tell a friend. We're on Apple Podcasts now. Google Podcasts as well as Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, and Anchor, who helps get this broadcast out to you each day. This has been Bob's World for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. I'm Bob Welch. Thanks for listening.